When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's September 21st, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake. Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator, is my partner today. The mood out there, pretty cautious. Uh, U.S. stocks really bounced around all day. We saw an early equity rebound fade, only to swing back. And, yep, fade again. The S&P 500 uh, settling pretty much unchanged. Only the Nasdaq kind of bucking the trend. And uh, the 10-year Treasury, also little change, yield at 1.32%. Yields on the 10-year in Germany, Netherlands, and Switzerland all remain in negative territory. And in commodities, the Bloomberg Commodity Index down for the fourth straight day. Tony, uh, great to see you. You know, I, I think we should have known that a U.S. stock rally rebound looked a little shaky when you tweeted that some kid in your neighborhood was waving a turnaround Tuesday sign. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. But I was literally every report that I read, starting with two or three yesterday, started speaking about turnaround Tuesday like the sell-off is some kind of a joke, right? Like It's like, oh, we're going to go and apply the meme. We're going to do the whole thing. We're going to buy the F and dip, and it's going to go back. You know what I mean? It's like, that's nice and interesting, but it's different this time. Right. And I understand that there are a bunch of nuances to that. But in my opinion, it's different this time. And I'm a little bit not on edge for a major fallout. But I think that we're going to have a little bit more downside to navigate. Why, why does it feel different? Why does it feel different this time? Well, for me, it's a different as a tape watcher and a price action junkie, Maggie. This test of the 50 day was very different than all the last ones. The last one was that formula that we've had that I've gone over so many times, the readers probably don't want to hear it anymore. But it's that one touch of the 50-day that comes after two down days. We have a red to green recovery, and off you go to the races again, right? After we have a severe downside, tick index prints, a couple of big selling days, right? This time, we kind of moseyed our way down to the 50-day moving average. We traded around it a couple of days and above it. And then we went out on Friday's close looking lower, mm -hmm. right? And that's something that we haven't done during this whole entire rally from the lockdown lows. So for me, I'm already sitting up on my chair on Friday afternoon. We come in Monday and we have that spill that everybody is waiting for, right? We've got another blow up in the Hang Sang property index. We've got a new low. And I feel like that's what the type of narrative that we're going to roll into now, where we're going to come in every morning, turn on our screens, look to the Western markets, uh, excuse me, look to the Asian markets and say, okay, what blew up? And how do I have to adjust for that? So that's why I think it's different this time is that we aren't reacting to a headline that is going to remain in the past and stationary like we reacted to the FOMC meeting. We had a little sell the fact sell off, like we reacted to the headline CPI number back in May. We had a little sell off, but those reactions were to something that is going to stay static and in the past. Evergrande, to me, sounds like a developing situation, sounds like a situation where when banks aren't getting paid, um, that there is going to be a distressed situation associated with this. 
And I do not trust China in any way, shape, or form to do the right thing financially, either for Evergrande, for the markets, or for anything. And that's just the position that I'm in right now. And I'm just not in a position to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to patch this whole thing up. Now, I don't think that they're going to let the financial system come apart. I don't think they're going to let banks fail. But this is going to be a slow-moving process to see you know, where the epicenter of this damage is. And if it's fair to say, I, and I'm not an expert in Evergrande or that bond situation, but I don't feel like we've gotten to the center of the onion of it either. Mm -hmm. So with that weighing in my mind, and now I've got you know, one half of a step worth of confirmation toward that today. Right Today traded just like the market was expecting a turnaround Tuesday, right? Yesterday on the lows, we came in and we had a minus 2,000 tick index print on the bottom, an absolute bomb, right? Everybody hurling. We trade below the 100-day moving average, and we bounce back above it. Today, everybody's saying, oh, that was probably the low because we bounced off a moving average. Let's buy them. So today, we get a tick index extreme on the highs of plus 1500, right? So everybody to me seems like they were on with this plan. We're gonna buy turnaround Tuesday. We're looking at the high yield market in the US, no signs of stress there, which is pretty much absolutely true. And what happens at the end of the day? We roll right over back to the yeah. opening price, which is the low of the day, right? So everybody that bought turnaround Tuesday is sitting there holding on to their stock right now, right? Yeah. So. In you know, Tony, I love I love that joke because to me, when you say that, it sort of represents the newer entrants in the market, right? Like they are younger. They this is you know in long stretches of of this this kind of price action, they have been kind of conditioned to buy the dip, and, and that you know there, there's nowhere else to go trade. So so I love that. That's what that seems like to me. Well, exactly. They, you know, we've got into this, uh, you know, habit of expecting immediate gratification, right? With the with the cryptocurrency performances, with the NFT performances, um, you know, with even equity performances, right? These, uh, you know, younger traders see the point of stress. They say the market sold off. That happened in the rearview mirror. That means we resume trend. And while that is probably going to be true at some point. The path that we get back to that is everything for me. So if I want to be, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, if I want to at least be prepared to buy a dip to the 41, a 4100 to the 200 day moving average, should that occur? I've got to make some adjustments today, right? I can't just sit here along the market like I kind of have been and, and participating in different things, but I can't just sit here long and say, okay, I'm going to wear a 200 point slide and then start buying again, right? That's just, nope, that's not a strategy. So, um, you know, when I look at things today, like the equity close toward the lows, when I look at Aussie yen kind of closing toward the lows, that's been a good risk barometer. You know, I still get a little nervous that maybe we're in the fifth inning of the sell-off. That's where I am right now. Yeah. So you mentioned the 200-day moving average because it seems like a lot of people are really focused on that right now as a thing. Is, are you watching that or is that something that we shouldn't get distracted by all that talk? No, you know, I, I don't want to be what's called like a moving average monkey, right? And base every one of my decisions off of that. But for me, when things get uh, volatile, you know, a lot of the, um, when things get volatile, these things start to come true more and more often, right? They kind of become self-fulfilling prophecies where the moving averages are where people, um, you know, they put their lines in the sand and they say, I was trying to buy the market. So I'm going to buy it down here on this dip and see, you know, what holds and what I should stay in. 
The problem that I have is that with things feeling different this time, the 200-day moving average is about, let's call it 240 points away from last sale. You know, we've got a lot of stress, and I, I feel like when there's stress in the markets, that I've seen them play what I call moving average hopscotch. And that's where everything is going just fine in a security. And all of a sudden, all at once, it goes from the highs to the 50-day to the 100-day to the 200-day, right? And then the market has to say, whoa, what's going on here? Like, was that the end of the rally? And are we now going to waterfall? Or is this a place that I can stick some bids in and buy the market? Now, should we get to 4,100 in the S&P, given what I've done in the last several days? I am in a position to inhale the market. And you know whether that's right or not, and whether we get down there, that's how I'm playing it because that's what the screens is telling me is still possible when I look yeah. at what's going on in the rest of the world. So, would you expect if people if people are also share your concern uh, about where we are? Is this a rotation within equities to a safer place? Is this out of equities somewhere else? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, treasuries have bounced a little bit, but they haven't shaken up out of their range at all. So that doesn't lead me to believe that we're in any kind of uh, asset allocation shift. Um, if it's fair to say the dollar has been bid and right back to the top of the range at 93 and a half in the dollar index, to me, that is my risk now as a commodity bull. If the dollar breaks mm -hmm. through 90 and 93 and a half, and as I'm not really a believer in triple tops, I'm already trading as if the dollar is through there mentally, right? I just think that eventually it's going to happen. I'm anticipating a little bit the way you would shift an outfield for a right-handed power hitter, right? I'm shifted all the way into left field, um, you know, waiting for that to happen. So um, if we get that, I'll be in shape. But if not, I've got, you know, another couple of tactical ideas along the way. But I guess I guess my biggest issue is um, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, allow the commodity markets to pull back from the highs. And I feel like the rest of the market that, um, you know, not connected to commodities is also under pressure. That's why I get this fear that the S&P is going to try lower. You know what I mean? The mm -hmm. sector that I'm bullish, the commodity sector, um, you know, there's risk there. If the dollar gets above 93 and a half, we saw what it could do earlier this week. It's already knocked copper way back on its heels, almost below LME 9K, really relevant. Um, not much of a dip in the energy markets, which is encouraging to me as that is the epicenter of where I want to stay bullish commodities, yeah. right? There's going to be a commodity. If there's going to be a commodity pullback there, I want to buy energy on this pullback. If the, um, if the Evergrande situation causes a pullback there, I yeah. think those markets underneath are still going to be markets that are remain in secular bullish condition. They remain backward dated. You know, we've still got this story about European natural gas trading record highs due to due to the power costs there. And with you know everybody shifting towards ESG, you know we can now look over at the EU for the model for what it's going to look like. It's going to look like a lot higher energy costs and at times almost emergency situation type energy costs. So. You know, that's how I'm kind of pivoting my world through this Evergrande shakeup, something that's definitely not fatal to the bull market, but something that needs to be respected if you're going to trade within this volatility. So yeah. we just had the VIX wake up, you know, and finally get above 20 and show some signs of stress. And I just want to look here to see what the day's high was. And, you know, today we didn't even touch yesterday. Yeah. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I was looking at that too. And so you weren't really seeing that fear there. You know, I, I, we're going to circle back in coming days. I love that broad theme that you just talked about in terms of ESG. It's been coming up in our conversations a lot. I think it's a really important one. Want to want to pull it back to Evergrande for a second because we had, um, you know, you're you're looking at the dollar uh, movements, of course, for your commodity trades. But we do have this Chinese situation, this Evergrande situation looming exacerbated by perhaps by the fact that the Chinese markets have been closed. Asian markets have uh, some of them have been closed for a holiday and um, they're going to be re- reopening. I want to play everyone a clip that a, uh, from a conversation that Jack Farley had with Ann Stevenson Yang, who's a China expert that had it live a little earlier today on Real Vision, where they discussed the knock on effects of the company's looming default. Let's have a listen. The impacts are enormous. So we already talked about iron ore and um, and copper and uh, to some extent cement, uh, to the extent that it's regional and to some extent glass. Um, but but there's also elevators that are directly exposed to, uh, to to Chinese construction, and those are mostly foreign supplied. Um, then there's uh, then there's a derivative of consumer spending. So consumer spending within China. So. So even though Alibaba and JD uh, and VIPS are listed in the United States, they depend on Chinese consumer spending. So will there still be confidence that that will grow? Uh, Then there's all the auto companies uh, within China and the auto companies in the U.S. and elsewhere that depend on Chinese spending. Now, how about BMW? BMW has done very, very well in China, but the price of an average BMW within China is much higher than it is in Germany. And that's a little bit mysterious. And clearly, you know, clearly there's not enough earning power in China to be paying for those BMWs. So why have people been buying them? Assets. Asset sales. Everyone who has a plus or pro membership can see that entire interview. And I, and I love hearing from people who are in the weeds. One of the things that's so hard, Tony, is it's so hard to know what's going on in China. You know, we just don't have reliable data. We don't have reliable information. But I, I think Anne's touching on a really important point here. Um, she, When she's talking about all the knock-on effects, it, it really seems like it's from a, a potential slowdown story as opposed to maybe a financial contagion story. And, there, and there's a lot of noise around that. Is it the next Lehman? Is it the next Lehman? Um, when she's really talking about the effects through all these goods and products, if this causes the, the, the Chinese uh, economy to slow down, how are you looking at this? Like, how are you trying to approach Evergrande when it is so hard to have reliable information on it? Yeah, you know, from a... Um you know, a primarily U.S. macro trader's perspective, um, you know, the information coming out of China has always been something that you have to take at face value, right? Um, there, there's always been suspicion about how they mark their economy, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to go into any kind of, you know, conspiracy about that. I just want to say that, yeah, like you said, it's hard to get accurate financial news and accurate financial, um, you know, opinion from things that are going on in China. So what all I can do every morning is Maggie watch the tape and see where the, you know, where the stress is coming out and are they, you know, selling Evergrande stock even further is the Hang Seng property index imploding further, 
You know, what does it sound like from the bond traders here? Is there is there spillover to credit yeah. markets here? Is there any kind of you know you know I don't I don't expect there to be direct spillover, but you expect potential sentimental spillover, just like we saw Monday morning when everybody said. Let's lighten up equities until Evergrande gets sorted out. Right, right? exactly, because you don't know how long this is going to last. And we 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 are, we do we are getting questions. Um, this is one from Todd before he even kicked off. Um, you know, worried about do you see the Evergrande situation leading to a construction slowdown in China again? putting long-term pressure on commodity prices. And, you know, maybe the flip is, if we see pressure from commodity prices there, where do we look to for support? You know, what are, what are some of the, uh, remind us of the themes that you've been looking at, and you're not the only one. We spoke to Ms. Schneider earlier uh, this month, and she was also focused on commodities. What are the supportive narratives? You know, well, if, you we, know if, if China might be a risk, what are the supportive narratives? Well, China, you know, China being the risk of, Maybe relinquishing their position as one of the biggest oil consumers in the world, right? So there, we're talking about the you know the big elephant in the room consumer that has been you know increasing their consumption almost ten percent a year for every year in the last ten. Um, you know, inevitably there's going to be a pullback from that because trees don't grow to the sky in a straight line. So. Yeah, I would imagine that, you know, I would imagine that what could happen to the energy market could be what happened to iron ore. Right. And so that's something where I have to respect the idea of a um, follow through to the downside in some of the commodity markets based on the controls that China is trying to implement, whether they're, um, you know, emissions controls, energy controls, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they the iron ore was soaring away, uh, you know, over a thousand won per metric ton. China made a lot of comments about trying to take the inflation edge out of the commodity sector. And next thing you know, iron ore is 700 won per metric ton offered and cascading lower, right? All of this going on while the steel markets remain bid. So there is a lot of confusion for equity, uh, commodity-based traders like me as to what to do with that complex, right? That's one to, to allude to one of you, you know, your question earlier. That's one of the confusing signals that comes out of China. Um, you know, iron ore crashing and and the price of hot roll coiled steel rallying to new high every day isn't something that you see very often. They're often much more connected. Um, but what it plays into is bigger margin for the steel makers at this point. And you would think that they'd be rallying, but they're not. So there's another point of confusion, you know, to kind of throw into the works. And a lot of that and a lot of that alongside Maggie, and I'm going back to the question you asked before is why yeah. is it different this time? You know, there was a lot of widespread damage yesterday. And all of this widespread damage took place at new prices in a new dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. These were cascading new prices. Um, ownership is changing hands at a dramatic pace. You're seeing volumes explode across the board in a couple of different names. And what's gone on now, you know, excuse me, let me get back to that main point. There were greater than two sigma slides across about eight sectors yesterday, not just individual stocks, entire sectors. So that means that there's a lot of damage under under the hood. And it means that somebody's holding on to all of this length yet. And to me, that's going to take a lot of time to redistribute out to the markets again. And so that's where the risk for me is to trading lower is to as that length gets redistributed, you know, then we're going to have a chance to buy things at lower prices. But for me, the one big thing that I don't want to let out of my trader brain is that, you know, we saw more equity inflow in the first eight months of this year than we have in the past decade combined. 
Now, mm-hmm. I do believe that a lot of that is sticky money because mm-hmm. it's money that, you know, investors that look at the situation, mass monetization, mass stimulus across central banks, that's inflationary. Man, I got to be in equities as a hedge. I get that. Some of it, though, is hedge fund traders piling in at the longs and mutual funds piling in at the longs, excuse me, at the highs. And not all of that works out perfectly all the time. And next thing you know, when you have to report a P&L on the S&P contracts that you bought at 4550, Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to make a decision at some point and make a sale. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for this sort of indigestion in the markets of all of this stock across sectors, from consumer discretionary to retail to metals and mining to technology, semiconductors, social media. All of it had a two sigma flop yesterday. And my idea is that stuff usually takes more than 48 hours to digest by the markets. Yeah. And, and when that's happening on a professional level, for people who are sitting at home, then you get that sort of psychological, you know, especially as we're dealing with what looks like a murky outlook. And, you know, th- this is where the sort of the things that are hard to quantify come into it, you know, that that sort of confidence in both the economy and in what's happening um, in everyone's 401. I want to ask you, so when you're looking for, because you are looking ahead, right? So you don't like the indigestion, the timing, you're, you're, you're nervously watching this. When it hits a level you like, are you identifying places that you want to buy? Yeah, you know, I've got a shopping list made out ahead of time because that's the only thing that you can get what you want for cheap prices, right? Um, you know, eventually there'll be a capitulation moment in my mind where I could say, wow, now everybody's looking down. I think this is a good time to maybe get in there and buy something. So when I look at my shopping list, Maggie, um, this is this is the dip that you're going to have to buy if you're going to jockey that end of the year performance, right? Yeah. So I've got a little bit of a different list than I've had in the past. Normally, I would just be saying, okay, I'm going to buy commodities on this dip. I'm going to buy commodities on this dip. I'm going to buy commodities on this dip, and I'm going to buy commodities on this dip. But that's you're consistent, not- Tony. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I stick with my knitting. That's one thing. That's for sure. But you know, um, you know, retail stocks have been in the lead all year, right? Up forty-five percent on the year to date, right now. Nothing broke about that chart. I mean, I'm, there's a good chance that I may come after retail stocks for the last uh, couple of months of the year. Um, I'm looking at home builders, where if you look at that chart. That chart's kind of just meandering, and they're not really getting dumped with uh, alongside all the industrial stocks. Also, if we're going to have a little bit of stress in the system and bonds are going to rally, um, number one, I can lean on a little bit lower mortgage rates for strength in the home builder sector, and then I can lean on data like it came out today. Right today, we beat housing starts, beat building permits, um, month over month, uh, housing starts are up four percent. So the housing sector to me is still one of those fundamental bulls that just keeps roaring, right? That's a sector that I'd stick a bid in on weakness at the right point or come after in a momentum trade at the right point off of the lows, right? The home building sector is, you know, still one of the top five performing sectors on the year. So I like buying those sectors that are strong. In addition, knowing that we've got this definite natural gas predicament that we might be working our way into, um, I would be looking to buy some of the natural gas stocks that have really only backed off modestly off of the highs in this pullback. So, you know, it's funny when you when I when I look at the S&P tanking like that, I'm always going through my charts and looking for stocks that have already pulled back to resistance or are or don't look like the S&P chart, right? Like they're kind of ignoring this move because yeah. those are the ones 
that are just going to come peeling out of this when the S&P finds a level and gets back on its horse again. And it will. I just think that we're definitely, in my opinion, I think we're definitely um, a couple of weeks before that happens and maybe only a few, but I think it could be from lower prices, which is why I'm really cautious. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, let's circle back to Nat Gas because there have been so many headlines, and, and uh, you know, uh, the UK Prime Minister is here in New York, and everyone's asking him about this, so you know that it's sort of top of mind. That doesn't usually happen. Uh, you know, first of all, is there room on the upside still? Because we've seen a huge move. And we're getting a lot of questions on, on a lot of the commodities, actually, on how to best play them. You know, uh, someone actually asked it about both Nat gas and uranium. Do you buy the individual companies? Do you buy the futures? How, how do you best play the commodities? But let's start with Nat gas first. Yeah, natural gas is, uh, I'll be honest, Maggie, natural gas is something that I've sworn off for years because I felt that I hadn't had an edge in, in, in anything. I hadn't felt like there was a story that I could lean on or a trend. Obviously, that all has changed in the last couple of months as natural gas has gone from $2 to 550 um, You ask if there's room on the upside. Well, I've seen natural gas go from 2 to 12 twice. Right. So is there room on the upside? The thing could double from last sale. Right. Like those are those are moves in your brain that you never forget. And when you see them happen twice, you look at five dollar five fifty natural gas and say. I don't see why that should be the top. You look at the chart and it looks like, you know, the technicals have all changed from clear downward sloping and trending to clearly upward trending. You know, we've got support from four fifty down now. Yeah. You know, getting through some of the recent highs in the stocks, more importantly, if you look at range resources, if you look at Devon, if you look at Enron oil and gas, you know, we're now coming back. We're now trading back up to recent highs from earlier this year with so much upside until the next resistance levels. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about range resources going through 18 or 20 and looking like it's got room till 30. You know, so, yeah, there's a lot of room in the stocks as well on the upside. The most important thing for me in the commodity space is, is like you said, buying the right instrument. And if I'm, you know, if I'm bullish crude oil, I'm usually careful to make sure that I buy crude oil and not XLE or Exxon Mobil, right? In, unless I'm specifically bullish the XLE for a reason or specifically bullish Exxon for another reason. Now, that's extremely nuanced. But at the same time, you don't want to say, I'm bullish oil, so I'm going to buy something else and yeah. then have something else burn you, but oil not go down. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That, and, that, and it is important because there are a lot of cross currents, as we've been talking about in commodities. It's not an easy space. This is a question coming in. And and let me know if, if this is not your your area, because there's political risk now here, too. I just mentioned that the prime minister is fielding questions while he's in the U.S. on what this means uh you know, in the UK, because of the sort of reverberations of that increase, energy companies potentially going out of business, they're worried about what it's going to mean for the economy. Um, Jim is asking if Nat gas production is not sufficient to fill caverns and meet US needs, do you think the government would ever step in and preclude NLG shipments to Europe and Southeast Asia? Interesting thought. Uh, I would think that is totally possible. 
Um, you would think it's totally necessary, but handicapping something out of this administration is not something I am capable of. But it raises the possibility that in addition to everything else you have to watch, you now have to watch the political risk when you're getting these price spikes that become a political hot potato. The price spikes are being driven by the politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and God forbid somebody from the media figures out that five and a half dollar gas is caused by a closed down pipeline and, you know, a number of other uh, restrictive policies by the administration who is now looking for the bad actors and pandemic profiteers. Well, they may need a mirror to do that. But, you know, we have to see where this is going to go, uh, Maggie. The natural gas story is a hairy one, right? Yeah. You know, we're looking across the pond. We're seeing natural gas trade at 400 pounds per, uh, what is it, cubic uh, billion, uh, what are we, BTUs, British thermal units, where that's used to trading 40 pence per million BTUs. You know what I mean? So electricity prices are flying off the grid. They are sourcing natural gas to attempt to um, create that power. The price of uranium is rallying in the background in case anybody has to pivot to more uranium for their power. So to me, you know, the, the energy story is just, you know, a, a rotating bullish story between fossil fuels, natural gas and uranium, because I think the world is coming to the realization that we're never going to have enough wind and solar to and you we're, know, meet and we're not even in target. winter. We're not even in winter in Europe yet. Um, and this right. is a, an issue for them all the time. And then and then you have to pay attention to what that does to their growth stories. So now you have China dealing with Evergrande. You have Europe dealing with gas prices, p perhaps different reasons. But coming together, does that does that hurt the global growth story that we had been looking to? Well, you know, it, what it upsets is the global equilibrium that we had or, or, or something like it where, you know, commodities were, were at, you know, bargain prices and heading lower for a really long time. We were in a pretty big deflationary spin. And then the Federal Reserve doubled their balance sheet and we pivoted it into a heavy green energy administration and everything changed. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no denying that like, on a dime. This changed November 2020. It's not uh, it's not a guess. Nobody's guessing when it started. You can draw a circle around it. That's when it started. That's when the inflation started. Right. So, um, well, well, that's when the, another leg of the inflation started. I think it's fair to say. So we're going to be figuring this out for months and months to come. But I feel like when we look across the pond and we see energy prices spiking, natural gas prices spiking. I feel like we know what we're in for over here as these mandates for more and more electric vehicles come down. And that's, that's one the of model. those. Yeah. And that's one of those larger themes that we're going to have to continue to uh, revisit. And we will here yeah, on Real Vision. You know, gas is approaching $7 a gallon in Los Angeles, you know, in, in yeah. the wake of a Newsom win. I mean, when's, when's the pushback going to be? Are they going to get that guy out at $10 a gallon? Or is there going to be pushback at $15 a gallon? Because, Maggie, if we continue on this pace, I don't think that that's where prices are going. I know that's where prices are going. This is one of those trades. Yeah, listen, I just filled up my car today, and it was painful. It was, it was, it was really painful. Um, and that's the kind of thing we always say. It's like a tax. Like everyone feels that, and uh, of all of the sort of price increases. Tony, we're out of time. Great to catch up with you as always. Thank you so much for all the great insight, especially in that really tricky commodity market. I know a lot of viewers are going to uh, take some of that advice and um, be a lot smarter for it. So thanks so much.
All and I thanks. can say is be careful out there, man. I'm only trying my best in these yeah. hairy, volatile markets. Yes, be careful. We, we really need to, to take that under advisement. Tony, thanks. And thanks to all of you for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, Jack Farley will be here with Darius Dale of 42 Macro. In the meantime, we'll see you on the exchange, Real Vision social platforms. Take good care. And good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.